Well, I try to always be enthusiastic on a Sunday morning. I try to always be motivated, thrilled. I pray, God, this is what you would have us to learn today. So uh, I need to act like this is what you'd have us to learn today. So usually on Sunday mornings, I'm pretty up. I'm pretty amped. I'm not other days, not all the time. I wish I was more level uh, level in my demeanor, but I'm usually up and down in life. But Sunday's usually up. Today, I'm really up. I am thrilled. I am so excited today because today we are going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus and it's not even Easter. I can't tell you, my pastor's heart, I have a weird relationship with Easter, and I know that sounds blasphemous to some ears. I have a weird relationship with Easter because 1 Corinthians 15 says that the life, death, resurrection of Jesus is of first importance. For me, the resurrection is not important during Lent, per se. It's not important during Holy Week, per se. It's not important on Easter, per se. It's always important. And so every Easter comes around and I think, oh, here we go. I've got to pretend, if you will, for all the once a year visitors or twice a year visitors, like it's the only thing in the Bible and we only talk about it once a year. Well, thank you for counseling me. I've got that off my chest now. Um, Christians think the work of Jesus is important all the time, not just on Sundays, but we do love Sundays, the day when he was raised from the dead. And so today we are going to be looking at the 28th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew because we've been studying Matthew's gospel account and today it just so happens according to God's providence we are ending our study on the life and ministry of Jesus in Matthew 28 and it is an unrivaled, glorious, wonderful resurrection text and it's not even Easter. But you know what? Next week we won't be in Matthew 28. And the resurrection will be important. And you know what else? On Easter Sunday, the resurrection will be important. Christ, who is our life, the Bible says. He gives us life, and so our lives center around His work for us. So, Matthew 28, here's what we're going to do this morning as we work our way through this whole chapter, all of the verses. If you'd like an outline this morning, I'm going to draw your attention to the seven responses to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. There are seven responses to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So as we work our way through, I'm going to draw your attention to those. Hopefully it will help you follow along. If it doesn't help you follow along, don't worry about it. Don't follow my seven responses. But I think you might be encouraged to take note of them. So seven responses to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And maybe I'll add this. In its historical context. Because that's what we're looking at. But no doubt, as we look at the historical context, we are going to see that some of these responses are somewhat like responses that have been the responses that even happen even today. Different kinds of responses to Jesus. Okay, let's call them classic responses maybe then. The first one is going to be fear. The first response to the resurrection of Jesus is going to be fear, or at least the resurrection events surrounding the resurrection. Maybe that's more proper to say. How about chapter 28, verse 1, now after the Sabbath, that would be on Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. 
cue the dramatic music. I wonder what kind of score would belong with this. They're going to go to the tomb. The people who love Jesus, the people who were with Jesus, the the people who experienced the love of Jesus in unique and extraordinary ways. Luke 24, if we want to look at Luke's camera angle, if you will, says that they go there bringing spices. So that means they're going there to show their respects. They're going there to visit the dead body of Jesus because that's why you bring spices in the first century. So they're expecting to find the body of Jesus to show love and respect for those who have passed. Keep that in mind. They're wondering how they're going to roll the stone away as well. Mark's account says, and they were saying to one another, these Marys, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Well, we're going to go do what's right according to our custom and tradition. uh, And we're going to show respect and love. But one problem we are going to face is who's going to be strong enough? Who is going to be there to be able to let us in? Well, we don't have to wait for very long as to what that's going to be like. Let's go ahead and read verse 2. And behold, Matthew likes to say that because it draws attention to, to the extraordinary or significant or striking. And behold, there was a great earthquake, which is going to lead to fear. And if you've ever experienced an earthquake, you experience fear. I've done a 6.7 and it knocked me out of bed. Fear, fear. Okay, behold, there was a, a great earthquake. For an angel, angel means messenger, for an angel of the Lord, a messenger, a messenger of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And we're going to see it wasn't to let Jesus out either, it's to let them in. Verse three says, his appearance, this is the angel's appearance, was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Verse 4 says, and for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. I like that part, don't you? Grown men, trained military officials, tough guys, poetic justice. They look like sissies now, right? They're scared senseless. That just makes my heart feel good. It gives me warm feelings all over. I like it. It's good. Put them in their place. But before we move on, I want you to know that what's truly impressive, if we take a few steps back and we look at the whole canon of Scripture, the whole measurement of Scripture, what's truly impressive, yes, it's impressive that these these tough guys are like like dead people because they're so afraid of the, the impressive, glorious, like lightning, white as snow, angels. Angels are impressive. Just ask these guards. But I want you to know if we step back, this is not the gospel account regarding the impressive nature of glorious angels. I know enough about the Bible. Some of you know enough about the Bible to know that the angels aren't impressed with the angels. These guards were impressed, maybe not in a way they enjoyed but that the angels even who are so glorious and grand because they are, are impressed with Jesus. 
Listen to this. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice. I'm going to read this wrong, so listen carefully. Worthy are we. No. The angels say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. As if to say, they just keep saying all these great things about Him because He is greatly worthy. So I couldn't help but cross-reference in my mind and share it with you. These guys are impressed with the, the angel and all the angels together are not impressed with themselves. They're impressed with the Lord Jesus Christ. And ultimately, that's what this is about. Ultimately, this is about His greatness. So may their fear of the angel remind you not about how great angels are. May their great fear of the angel cause you to say, there's actually someone greater than all of the scary angels. It's the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That was Revelation chapter 5, by the way, if you were wondering what I was reading. Revelation 5 to 11. And if you already knew that, we have a special prize for you after the service. Number two, a second response to the bodily resurrection of Jesus in its historical context and all of the events surrounding. That first one was fear, but now the second one is going to be joy. It's going to be joy when we keep reading in verses 5 and following. In verse 5 it says, But the angel said to the women. I like it that he's talking to the women. He's not talking to the people who would have seen themselves as superior, outranking, uh, more important. The, the great glorious angel is not there to talk to those guys. He's there to talk to the women. And he says, Do not be afraid. I also like it that he doesn't say that to the soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> do not be afraid for for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Verse 6 says, he is not here. And let's stop at the comma for a moment. He is not here. Let's stop and see or think about how weird that sounds. How strange that is. I know why you're here. You're looking for Jesus who was crucified, who you saw crucified, who you heard, who you eyewitnessed. You're here to see Him. But it says, He's not here. Well, that doesn't make sense. Well, if He, of course, of course He's here. This is where He's buried. We saw Him crucified and He's buried here. And there's guards. Of course he's here. It doesn't even seem right. And then if we keep reading and we go after the comma, for he is risen. For he has risen. And then he says, as he said. How about as he said in chapter 16, verse 21. As he said in chapter 17, verse 23. As he said in chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. He did what he said he was going to do. You're here to see the crucified Jesus, which on a certain level makes a lot of sense because if he's a crucified Jesus, his body's going to be there if that's where they buried him. You know, it's one of those moments like, am I going too fast for you? Of course he's here. He's not here. Why? Because he's raised from the dead, just like he said he would be. 
They brought spices. They expected to find him dead. He's not dead. He's been raised just as he said. Then verse 6 goes on to say, come, see, and let's emphasize this because we need to see the point, I think. Come, come with me. See the place where he lay. And what I would like to do with you right now is to stress the place where he lay. Remember, remember, remember when we're talking about authentic, genuine, biblical Christianity. But I repeat myself. (laughs) We're talking about historic realities. Okay? Let me show you the place where his dead body was. Okay? He's going to go on to say, you will see him in your hearts? No. See him through a vision? No. See him as some sort of fantasy? No. He's going to go on to say, you will see him in Galilee, verse 7. Galilee is a historic place. So here's the historic place where they put his body. See, here's the real place. And then you're going to go and see him in Galilee, historic place, real place, not Narnia. And then also see, verse 7, I have told you. Jesus will then say in verse 10, go to Galilee and there you will see me. And you say, why are you focusing on these things so much? Because sometimes even we as Christians forget that the Christian faith is not faith in faith. The faith means trust. Christians are trusting in the historic Jesus. And you can see, if you were the original eyewitnesses, where his body was. And then you're called to go and see him with your own eyes that you've been seeing reality throughout your whole life up until now, if you're the Marys, let's say. And I want you to use those same eyes and eventually then you're going to go to Galilee and you're going to see him. And I'm stressing it because we have to remember that apart from the historic bodily reality, we have no hope. And maybe you don't need to hear me say, see, so many times. (laughs) But I guarantee you, you know people who don't think the way you think about what Christianity is and is not. When we're talking about biblical Christianity, we're not talking about faith in a fantasy. We're not talking about faith in faith. We're not talking about faith in a phantom or faith in anything else that starts with an F. And I know phantom doesn't start with an F, by the way. I was reminded first hour. Glad someone's listening. In Christianity... Faith is trusting in someone or something. It's real. So when in our culture we say, just take it on faith. Yeah, just take it on ignorance. (laughs) We're talking about bodily, buried there, really crucified. See, here's here's where he was. But you can know that he's been raised and you're going to be able to go and see him. It's really important. 
as one of my favorite old writers who's now in heaven says, faith is only as good as its object. Think about that. I know it's still early on a Sunday morning, but it's almost noon, right? What are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? Not a phantom, not a fantasy. The one who was seen. Okay, let's keep moving. Unless you guys need me to keep talking about this. I could talk about this for a long time. Verse 7 says, Then go quickly, as if he needed to say that, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he, and I want to point this out, he, the one who was crucified, who you saw crucified, go and that he has risen from the dead. That's good news. Then verse 7 says, And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. One great thing about studying the Bible, when you just keep meditating on it over and over again, you start to see word repetition. And in our case, it's see, 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 see. Oh, that might be important. I'm going to say to you, it is important. As a quick footnote before we move on to number or verse 8, this doesn't mean the first time they'll see him is in Galilee because when you look at all the gospel accounts, that's the official meeting place where they're going to gather, but they're going to see him in the in-between times. Okay, verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to his disciples. So... Notice, we can appreciate their joy. Their joy because they saw Jesus crucified. Physically devastated. Darkness in the middle of the day. They felt the massive earthquake at his death. They heard the agonizing cry. They saw how he breathed his last breath and gave his life up. They experienced it all and now they're told that he's been raised from the dead. Go tell the disciples he's going to meet you where he said he was going to meet you. No doubt they're happy. They're excited. Really? The one we love so much isn't dead anymore? Seriously? And not only that, we would have great joy because of that. And the things that he did for us, we would have great joy because of that. But we would also, if we were those folks, have great joy because if he's been raised, then the promise that he made, that if you believe in me, though you die, you will live too, must also be true. Joy is what comes from resurrection. Amazing. The divine messenger has told us that he's been raised from the dead. Joy, joy, joy. Maybe he actually is true to his namesake. Name him Jesus. I almost forgot to put this in the last sermon. Matthew 28. Name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. how we started. A dead Savior can't save anybody from anything. But He could deliver His people from their sins. How about this? Read into it. And the consequence of sin, which is death, how could He do that? Through His resurrection being raised on, every, on behalf of everyone who would ever trust in Him. Indeed, He is the one who can save His people from their sins. So let's run! I love it. So they're on their way to the disciples and something happens. 
something wonderful happens. Number three, then, on our list when it comes to responses to the resurrection of Jesus, number three is worship. It is worship. I almost said it the wrong way, which is kind of the right way, because we talk about the old English word when we say worship and we sometimes say worth-ship. Worthy, great, extraordinary He is worthy to be seen as the one who could save his people from their sins. They're going to worship him. Verse 9 says, And behold, Jesus. The one they saw and heard horrifically crucified with their own eyes and ears. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. I'm only guessing. What kind of inflection would he have had? No idea. But he said, Greetings. He said something positive, something good. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. What else would you do? There's only one explanation. He's none other than the one who was just like us as a human being, though without sin, but who could rule and reign forever, who came from heaven, none other than the one who is who he said he was when he said, before Abraham was, I am. He's the eternal son. And so you worship Him. I would love to take the time, we won't do it right now, to talk about why this is the right response. When we think, if we even go, uh, we step back and we look at all of the things that will be said about this event, as far as the resurrection, the work of Christ, and all that secures for His people, from justification to sanctification to glorification to all other important nations, as I like to say. Worship Him because He gives us all of His benefits that we need. Resurrection leads to worship. I want the resurrection of Jesus, though I'm not an eyewitness, to lead to my worship. He and He alone is worthy, and He and He alone calls for my trust, my confidence. I'm basing my eternal destiny and everything in life upon what He's done. I'm thankful that these people saw and heard, and worshipped. Did you notice that Jesus has a perfect opportunity to tell them, oh, stop, stop, stop. Worship God and worship God alone, which is true. But He doesn't do it. In fact, if we keep reading, it says in verse 10, Then Jesus said to them, He doesn't say, do not worship. He says, do not be afraid. He welcomes their worship, but He calls them to not need to be afraid. I suppose there's lots of reasons why he would tell them not to be afraid. But one good reason for Jesus to tell them, the resurrected one, to not be afraid. Get this. Because in his resurrection, for believers, he's not against them. He's not their resurrected judge, though he is a resurrected judge. He's not their resurrected judge. And I know this to be true based upon what the Bible says elsewhere. For example, in Acts 17, one reason Jesus is raised from the dead is because he is going to be the judge. But he doesn't say cower in fear and terror. He welcomes them as worshipers and he says, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. 
I know I'm not reading too much into this based upon what he goes on to say in verse 10. Go and tell my brothers. I would like you to put special emphasis on that word if you would. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Don't be afraid and go tell my brothers. Don't be afraid because I'm not here to be your judge, you believers. I'm here as a spiritual sibling. That's why I'm here. I'm here for you. You don't need to be afraid. I love it. I love it. I love it. Now, maybe this is the minority, but some people think he's talking about his literal brothers because he had literal brothers, uh, half brothers. Mary and Joseph had other children. So he shared a mother with others. But that most most Bible commentators don't think that's what he has in mind here. That all would be true because in the past, even in Matthew's recorded account, he refers to other believers as his brothers and sisters. For example, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, so you don't take my word for it, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and mother. So I take it in verse 10, go and tell my other spiritual siblings. He's the faithful elder brother. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 says, he is not ashamed to call them believers, brothers, siblings. He's the faithful elder brother who represents all of the other siblings. And the father is pleased with him. So pleased. He, uh, Romans chapter 8. Took me a moment there. Refers to him as the heir. And it says we are fellow heirs. Right? So he inherits as the older brother. Who is faithful. Loving his siblings if you would. As their representative. Doing all the right things. He doesn't say I'm ashamed of them. Because his blood covers us, his perfect work covers us, he's not ashamed to call us siblings. So I'm just trying to remind you here, if you're not a Christian, you should be afraid of the resurrected Jesus. Read Acts 17. He will judge. Not a good look. As an, if I'm an unbeliever, I'm going to try to do doctoral level work to try to prove that the resurrection didn't happen. It's my worst nightmare that there's judgment to come from the resurrected Jesus. But that's not true because I'm a Christian. I'm trusting in him. So what I want to know from Jesus is, I don't need to be afraid because I am one of his siblings. And the father is pleased with the work of the eldest son. And that means life is good for the rest of us. It's wonderful. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 is a good cross-reference. Hebrews chapter 2 is really what I'm drawing upon. Hebrews 2, verse 11. Hebrews 2 emphasizes the humanity of Christ. He's divine and human, but it's important that he's human because he represents us. So I've been drawing upon that emphasis there, the, the brother emphasis. For a long time, I was a Christian. I didn't even know that the Bible emphasized that. but And I say that just for your benefit in case it's new to you. Before we move on to the fourth one of these... Um, maybe one question we should ask, why Galilee? Because it's actually strategic. So go ahead, meet me in Galilee as had been planned. Tell my brothers to go and meet me in Galilee. And if they're my brothers, it's going to be a good kind of meeting. Why Galilee? Well, for starters, it's a real place. <laughs> so I like to emphasize that. We're, we're going to gather in a real place called Galilee, but also, and more significantly, we're going to meet in Galilee because Galilee is the place you wouldn't expect us to meet. Meet in, meet in Jerusalem? Absolutely. Galilee? 
Galilee is where the, that, that's associated with paganism. Galilee is associated with the nations, not the Jews. Galilee is associated with bad kinds of worship. Remember, that's where the pigs are, right? The unclean animals. Remember the pigs being, the, the demons being cast into the pigs? We wouldn't allow those to be around Jerusalem. Paganism. Galilee. Remember, remember, and if you don't remember, I wouldn't if I didn't have it in my notes. Chapter 4, verse 15. Galilee of the Gentiles. That's how it's officially known in the first century. Galilee of the nations. Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee, not of the Jews, but of the pagans. And that's where Jesus, the resurrected one, is going to go and officially meet with his disciples. This is setting it up perfectly for the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of not just the Jews, the Gentiles too, the nations too. Places like, you know, Galilee. Because Jesus is not only the Savior of Jewish believers, He's the Savior of Gentile believers. This is strategic, and it, does, it doesn't just come from chapter 4. Uh, just by way of review, we have, we have a sense of this in chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 2, 2, verses 1 to 12, chapter 4, chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 24. There has been this emphasis on nations, Gentiles, world, Galilean kind of people. It's all part of the plan. This is why sometimes the Bible says Jesus is the Savior of the world. And it's not emphasizing universalism as in you don't need to believe in Jesus, everybody goes to heaven. No, He's the one and only Savior of all different kinds of people. Go and meet, like we said, in Galilee. I like that. We're going to go have a Christian conference. Where are we going to go? Colorado? No, we're going to meet in Vegas. What? That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's not where you would expect. Okay, Jesus didn't come for the good people. He came for those who would acknowledge their sin. Number four, next one, fourth response to the bodily resurrection of Jesus in its historical context is deception. Deception, I really don't like this one, so let's go fast. How about it? (laughs) Oh, the tenor of the soundtrack would definitely change when we get to this part. It would definitely change. Verse 11 says, While they were going, behold, again, marked significance, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests, the Jewish religious leaders, all that had taken place. So they're going to tell them all about the, how Jesus was put in the tomb and it was sealed up and guards. And then before you know it, there's earthquake and, and you've got the guys fainting. Uh, and then the body's not there and all of these things that have happened. They give them the details. Then verse 12 says, And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people... His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Which doesn't even seem to be a very good lie, given the pride that they would have taken in their soldiership, to make up a word, their guardsmanship. Verse 14 says, And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him 
and keep him out of trouble. Which is pretty presumptuous. It's why New Testament scholars would say, with that kind of confidence, don't worry. It's not going to be a problem for you. It should be a huge problem for you. But by now, apparently, the Jewish religious leaders have a proven track record that can give them confidence. We know how things work. We know how to get things done. It's not going to be a problem. We'll take care of him. It's a terrible look. Verse 15 says, So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, ever so quickly, because I said I wanted to go quickly, I put my finger in this text and then back to chapter 27, verse 42. 27.42 says, He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel, mocking. Let him come down now from the cross. And how about these words? And we will believe in him. All we need to see is evidence that he is divine. All we need to see is evidence that he has power over death. And so if we, he can show us he has power over death, we'll all Pray the sinner's prayer and believe in him, so to speak. And now we know they're liars. Because he has proven he has power over death. I mean, he, he's, he's proven it even more so because he actually died. And has actually been raised. And they're all coming forward when they do the altar call in 700 verses of just as I am. No, sorry, that was a cheap shot. (laughs) No. We just have to come up with a lie. We have to discredit Christianity because if Jesus is raised from the dead bodily, then we're scammers. We need to repent of our sin. We need to trust in Him. We need to join that motley bunch worshiping Him. That's what will happen. The stakes are too high. We won't go to Acts 17. I mentioned it earlier, Acts 17, 31. But it is an important text when it comes to resurrection. Okay. Let's move on to a fifth response. We're doing seven of these. A fifth response to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And it's more worship. It's more worship. How about verse 16? Now, and the construction there could be seen as a, as a contrast, almost like, but, and maybe some of your translations actually translate it that way. By way of contrast, we're going to see something totally different. Now, or but, we see those pathetic, desperate religious leaders trying to do this cover-up. Now, or but, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Then 17 says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. They saw that he was worthy. They worshipped because, if we want to step back and think of the bigger picture, they now know that he did in fact come to fulfill all righteousness, obedient to God's all of God's commands. 
that he really did. He didn't just say he was going to. They now know he promised to be raised from the dead and he's been raised from the dead. They now know he lives up to the name Jesus. He can save his people from their sins. They now know, so they worship him, that he's the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate Christ, who can rule and reign forever and fulfill the promise that was made even way back in Second Samuel chapter 7 to one who would come in the line of David. They now know that he's the one. They now know that he is the one. The Apostle Paul will elaborate later, so maybe they don't know this, but bear with me. That he's been vindicated at his resurrection. Right? He's been justified at his, as his, at his, resu- at his resurrection, as Paul will go on to say in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. They now know that you can trust in Him. Though you die, you will live. So it's benefiting them. They now know that He's been raised for our justification. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself in Romans. But they, they now know that He's the one. That's what I'm getting at. And so therefore they worship. If you know these things about Jesus... That though you die, you will live. John 11, and you see him raised from the dead, you say, I'm going to worship him. I'm going to worship him and I'm going to worship him alone. He's worthy. I worship Jesus because he's been raised from the dead. I'm with the Apostle Paul and I want to push this with you. I'm with the Apostle Paul. If he has not been raised from the dead, then we are the biggest idiots ever on planet earth. I admire that. My, my whole, whole, I put all of my eggs in this basket. But if he's been raised from the dead, I know that God is not going to condemn me. He's going to raise me from the dead unto newness of life. That's why Christians get excited about this. That's why Christians are promoting this. That's why Christians will defend this bodily resurrection of Jesus Catalyst for worship, and rightfully so. We're going to do number six. And it's doubt. The resurrection brings doubt, at least initially. Verse 17 then says, But some doubted. And that makes you nervous. It makes you sad. It makes you feel weird. It makes you think, if I were writing the Bible, I wouldn't have put that in there. And I want you to know that if I were writing the Bible, I would redact that to use the big fancy word. I'd take that part out. In fact, there's a lot of things if I were writing the Bible and it was trying to convince people of its authenticity, I would take out. Like all of the true history about how terrible Christians act. Oh, wait a second. That's actually a big reason why I believe the Bible is true. No person trying to prop up their own sorts of people in their right mind would ever write the Bible. It's it's too truthful. You know what? Let's just be honest then. Some of the people, they doubted. I think I would say, and everyone everywhere believed this and therefore you should too. doesn't say that. Some some believed so much so that they saw him for who he was and they worshipped. But you know what? Some doubted. And how about, let's give them a little bit of a break for a little while, at least. Here's why I want to say this. This is important. If you saw Jesus crucified, beaten ahead of time, can't carry his own cross beam from a human perspective, then crucified, 
bludgeoned on the cross, dead, killed by death experts, though he himself gave up his life ultimately. But you get the idea. You're an eyewitness like these folks were eyewitnesses. And somebody says, he's been raised from the dead. I, I think I probably would say, I'd like to see that. Because he's really, he really died. If you, how about this? I actually think that doubting helps us to really believe in the reality of the real crucifixion. I saw him and he was dead as dead could possibly be. You know what? He wasn't like people would later paint pictures about. It was, he didn't have kind of a little bit of a smile on his face with his soft feathery hair. Oh, that's nice. Isaiah the prophet says, marred more than any man, bludgeoned, crucified. You know what? Resurrected? I might be one of those bringing the spices. And you might be too. I actually think it goes to the argument. Really resurrected. Really, truly, genuinely resurrected. But you know what? So really, genuinely crucified that when you tell me, I'm like, ah, I'm not so sure I need to see it. And I need to not only see it, I need to see it up close. I gotta let it sink in maybe for a, for a bit that this is actually is true. In our next verse, in verse 18, we will see Jesus approaching, coming up to them. And some Bible scholars say maybe that's what helped them no longer doubt. I'm not sure of that, but it may be the case. Okay, finally, we're on number seven. The final response to the bodily resurrection of Jesus in its historical context, and that is command. It is command, number seven. And this is Jesus' response, if you will, to his resurrection. Jesus responds because he's raised from the dead with issuing a great imperative, a great command. We call it the Great Commission. And here we go. It's great. It's good. We've done a whole series on this before. We won't be able to do that today. But here's his response. 18. And Jesus came. Some translations would came up to them. That's the idea why some people think maybe that would alleviate doubts because he's now closer. Don't know for sure. That's not what we're emphasizing now anyway. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And what does that mean? That means everywhere, right? That's just a way of saying ultimate authority anywhere and everywhere. There, there, there's nothing without the, beyond the purview, beyond the scope. All authority has been given to me. Now, I want to ask you, Bible readers, did Jesus have authority before this? He absolutely had authority. He had authority to raise the dead. He had authority to speak things into being, to create out of nothing. He had authority to cast out demons. He had, a, he had all kinds of authority. He's always had authority. He never got rid of his authority. And yet there's something unique here as the incarnate one, as the, as we say, the last Adam, the second Adam, the representative of the human race, the first one did horrifically and we're in this mess. But here this faithful one who humbled himself, so he's the eternal son, the great I am, he humbles himself, Philippians 2 says, he becomes one of us, he becomes a real human being, and then he is tried and tested 24-7 throughout his whole life, 
He goes to the cross. He's crucified, though he never sinned. He died, though he never sinned. And the wages of sin is death. So he couldn't stay dead. All of these amazing things. And Philippians 2 says, therefore, what? God highly exalted him. Name above every name. This unique authority as the God-man that Jesus has that calls for our worship. So he can now say, all authority, unique authority as the incarnate God-man. Unique authority me for, for me. I want you now to do something. And you need to know that by me being raised from the dead, I, from the dead, I wasn't a faker. I wasn't a liar. I wasn't blowing smoke. I'm the real Messiah, the real deliverer, the real one that everybody needs to trust in if they want to be saved from their sins. Get the idea? I could go on. Exciting stuff. All authority, universal authority has been given to me. There are other lords, lowercase l. There are other kings, lowercase k. There are other Christs, lowercase c. I could go on and on. All authority. So, all lesser authorities are under my authority because I am the authority. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay, Jesus, if that's true, what would you want us to do? If you fulfilled the prophecy of Daniel 7 that you are the Messiah King, universal sovereignty, what is the universal mission? Oh, that's the right question. We know it. Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go and make followers of mine, of all nations. Later in the book of Acts, disciples are going to be called Christians. And that makes a lot of sense because if you're a learner of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, you see him as your savior, you're trusting in him for eternal life. It would make sense that you are a Christ belonger, a Christian. But go and make disciples. Go and make believers. Go and make Christians. And Remember, this happens through gospel proclamation. He doesn't elaborate on it here. But we have it unpacked in the book of Acts, which is where we're going later. Um, We have it unpacked in other places. The way someone becomes a part of the family of Christ, if you will, one of his spiritual siblings, the way you are saved is by believing in the good news of salvation in Christ, right? The way you become a disciple is by believing in Jesus as your substitute, as your Savior, as your resurrected, spotless Lamb crucified on your behalf. I'm saying all of these things because sometimes in the history of people who say they're Christians, you make disciples by the sword or the spear or by the threat over the governing authorities. That's not what he has in mind. We know that's not what he has in mind. The way to be a follower of Jesus is by trusting in Jesus, by faith, not by coercion. And so we preach the gospel to everyone and that's how people come become disciples. And I probably didn't need to say that to any of you here today. But you might need to think about that as you communicate more and more with people who don't have any semblance of a Christian worldview. And maybe what they have heard about Christianity is something other than biblical Christianity. And so I want to help you think about the way to make disciples of all nations is by good news proclamation. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We do urge people to believe, but not by coercion. I was speaking, I was a guest speaker one time at a university. 
speaking to not on, well, I was speaking on Christianity and government and those kinds of things. And I was talking about how the church needs to mind its own business and preach Christ and not try to, uh, I'm getting, I'll stop. (laughs) When I communicated the Great Commission, at least one student who was very engaged heard me wrongly as saying, we by force should go and force people to become followers of Jesus. That's what they heard me say. That's what they understood me to say when I quoted the Great Commission. And so I learned a lesson. And so I'm trying to help you maybe um, just be deliberate and thoughtful about how we make disciples. It's through gospel proclamation. It's through good news proclamation. So, maybe more than you wanted to know here today, but we don't want people rejecting a gospel that isn't the gospel. And we don't want people believing a gospel that isn't the gospel. So here's what we're called to do. All authority has been given to Jesus. I'm not going to shy away from that, and I'm not going to shy away from telling anybody, university student or not, that they need to believe in Jesus or they're in a whole lot of trouble. But you must trust in Him and become a disciple of Him. And notice it does say in our text, all nations... All nations, all ethnos, all, oh, that might help us to kind of know what he means. All ethnicities, all people groups, regardless of where they live, regardless of what language they speak, regardless what they, of what they look like, regardless of their education. Oh, here we go. I'm going to get controversial. Regardless of their religion. Jesus for sure has these kinds of things in mind. He's a Jew, raised from the dead, for sure on behalf of Jews. But he's also the savior of the nations. And so here's what they needed to do. Here's what we need to do because it's been passed down to us. We do have to lovingly, thoughtfully, passionately, clearly, carefully step over any and all boundaries and tell people the truth about Jesus. And nobody needs to hear about Jesus if they're already right. Nobody who's a good person needs to hear about Jesus. Nobody who's already a part of a saving religion needs to hear about Jesus. And Jesus says, make disciples of all ethnos. ethnos, Because no one is good except God alone. And no religion is saving except for the one who has all authority, the one and only one who's been raised from the dead. This is why the Apostle Peter will say, very not PC. Acts chapter 4, there's no other name given under heaven by which you must be saved, saved from your sins, saved from its consequences. So this is, this is what motivates us as Christians to tell people the good news, to say, believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in that priest. Don't trust in that other mediator. Don't trust in your good outweighing your bad. God requires perfection. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Become one of his spiritual siblings. He's the representative. Become a disciple of Jesus. Make disciples of all nations. It's a, it's a bold proclamation that he makes, but I remind you, who does he think he is? Read verse 18. And he's the only one who's been raised from the dead. 
Then, and again, I would like to keep talking about this as it is so important, but we're going to move on right now. We go, then it says, baptizing them, as God's providence would have it. We had a baptism this morning. So we had a disciple, a believer. We baptized them. So baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned earlier, but in case you weren't here or not listening, all kinds of Jewish washings. This is an extraordinary kind of washing. We're going to call God Father, close intimacy. We're going to put the Son on the same level and the Spirit on the same level. We're talking about the one true and living God who always has been God and always will be God, and He's the triune God who we can't comprehend. But we baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So they're publicly identified with Him because of what He does for them in making them disciples. Then it says, teaching them, the disciples, to observe all that I, the one given all authority, so that makes sense there, have commanded you. Which is why I refer to this as the baton being passed. Because if they were to teach disciples to command the same things. Eventually this gets to us. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Just for shock value, I don't really mean this. That last part isn't true. I don't really mean that. I don't want to be struck by lightning. Okay, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Wait a second. I know the Bible well enough to know, and you know that Jesus doesn't stick around. Jesus, what? Jesus ascends. Jesus ascends. He's at the right hand of the Father and, and, and He intercedes on our behalf and claims this as His own. And oh, not only that, I know that we're supposed to say things like, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Why would we ask Him to come when He's here? Things that make you go, hmm. Well, we do see Jesus ascending and it's actually important because He will ascend. Kings ascend to a throne and they rule and reign with a scepter. Fulfilling Psalm chapter 2. But he does send his spirit, sometimes even actually titled and labeled the spirit of Christ. He is with us uniquely, extraordinarily. And when evangelism seems scary and when promoting or defending the gospel so that we can have a great commission leads to persecution, as it will for some of these, as it does sometimes for us, as it has for believers who've gone before us, if we are afraid about being bold, no, the one who has all authority is with us. He's not orphaned us because we have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us. So many things to learn and think about and know and be motivated about that come as a result of the resurrection of Jesus. Raised unto newness of life. I hope that motivates you even to live your life for His glory and for His honor because you don't have to be afraid of dying and never living again. We should pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a great opportunity we have had to look at your word, the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We are delighted this morning to know that all who trust in him don't need to be cowering of his ju- cowering before him because of judgment. 
Thank you that he indeed is a friend of sinners like us. For those who have never trusted in him, Lord, bring about conviction of sin, repentance, saving faith, that they might join the rest of us in honoring our great Savior King, who is none other than Christ the Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.